following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. It's wonderful to be here. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. We started Luke when we started Advent because Luke is so great to set us up for all of the pre-birth narrative stuff. And of course, we'll continue through Christmas. It will be in Luke all the way to Easter and just a little bit after Easter when we'll uh, see the ascension of Jesus as well. It should be a really enriching time to see how Luke, this wonderful historian, gives us a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And today we have the great opportunity to look at this incredible passage of Jesus' birth. Right here in the midst of all of the proclamation from angels about who Jesus will be and prophecy about John and what John is going to do to proclaim the Messiah. And sandwiched in between then miraculous appearings of angels to shepherds and all kinds of crazy miraculous things happening. We have a picture of a very humble scene. So pay attention now to Luke chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. You can follow along in your own Bible or in the screen above. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is God's word, word, friends. He gives it to us because he loves us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for um, your appearing. We're grateful for your incarnation, and we're grateful, Lord, for you appearing here today in your word as you reveal yourself to us, by your spirit as you tell us that you're present when we gather And so, Lord, in this time that we have with you, in this celebration that we have of you coming to us, we pray that you would work in our hearts, and we pray it in the name of Jesus, amen. I was doing some reading the other day about uh, royal visits, like when royals take trips places. I'm not one of those people that's like obsessed with royals. I had a friend in Baton Rouge who all he wanted to ever talk about was the royals. I don't know why that was such a weird obsession of his, but they are pretty fascinating in a lot of ways, especially when you start to look at the way, the difference in the way that their lives look and the way that most of our lives look. In fact, if the royals, anybody in the royal family, if they're going to take a trip, there is a tremendous amount of planning that goes on. You've got to do all the logistical work, of, of course, of who's going here, when, and they may have three or four speaking engagements per day. And so getting people place to place is a big job. But then you've also got to worry about all the cultural stuff. 
what you're going to wear, what you're going to say, what the right etiquette is, whether or not a man needs to wear a particular pin or a particular metal or a particular color or stay away from a particular color. The hem links and the arm links of the, of the dresses and the clothing that the women will wear, it all has to be planned out well in advance. And then usually they will take with them quite an entourage. When William and Kate visited Canada a few years ago, they took 12 people with them just to attend to them. All kinds of different secretaries, but including also a hair stylist and a clothing stylist to be with them all the time to make sure that they were perfectly on point. I just read to you the story of the highest royal that has ever existed, the king of the universe, the one who the Apostle Paul says in Colossians is before all things, the one through whom all things were made, the king of all the cosmos. But when he came to earth, when he appeared, he did not take with him an entourage. Mary did not have a hairstylist with her. In fact, by Luke's account, she didn't even have a midwife with her. This probably young teenage girl also probably didn't have even her own mother with her because she was in a foreign town. And there she is, probably with only the company of her fiancé, which ladies, I know you're like, that doesn't sound like very good company, with only the company of the father, stepfather, and a few animals hanging around. Jesus' appearance was humble. When Jesus came and visited earth, when Jesus appeared to us, when Jesus came to do the thing that he had been planning to do since before the dawn of time, he appeared in utter humility. And what I want us to look at this morning is why that's important. Why is it important for Jesus to be humble? What does Jesus' humility do for us? We're going to look at three things today. We're going to talk, first of all, that Jesus' humility is important for our own salvation. That's the most important thing. And then that Jesus' humility also is a model for us. Jesus' humility should be our example. And that also Jesus' humility is our comfort. So first our salvation, then our example, and then our comfort. Jesus' humility being our salvation, I want you to turn, if you've got a Bible, to Philippians chapter 2, because the Apostle Paul really hones in on Jesus' humility, especially as it relates to our salvation. Listen to this. This is Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The, the theologian John Murray 
has written that uh, Jesus, if he had appeared and taken the form, if he was born in a castle to nobility, if he was born to the king of the land under fanfare for everything, then he still would have taken on the most humility possible, right? Because the king of the cosmos to come and to make himself one of us, whether that is to appear in a barn or to appear in a castle, would still be him humbling himself. But Paul takes it a step further when he says that he humbled himself not just by becoming a man, not just by putting on our flesh, that's humbling enough, but also by not only living a humble life, being born a humble birth, living a humble life, really living most of his life in relative poverty, but Paul focuses on here, he humbled himself by dying for us. He humbled himself by being put to death on a Roman cross. He humbled himself as he hung for our salvation. And on that concept hangs our salvation. Jesus, in his humility, has come to lay his life down for us. Jesus, the great king, has come to make himself nothing, to empty himself so that he might save us. I read a story about a missionary couple the other day in, in the Middle East. And they had experienced something interesting on their first, first year on the field. They learned that there was a tradition around Christmas time that people would visit each other's homes and that you would give out then chocolates or candy or something like that. People would dress up nice and give away these little gifts. And so they thought, oh, that's a great idea. That sounds like a lot of fun. So they got all dressed up. They bought some gifts. They made some little nice gifts. They, they got some nice chocolates. They were ready to give out. And they waited and they waited and they waited. And no one ever came to their home. And then another missionary friend of theirs who had been there for a while said, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you, there's kind of a catch here, is that in this culture, the small visit the big, and the big give the gifts. And since you're new, and since you're a foreigner, you're really kind of a small person in this culture. And so the people would visit the grandparents or the parents, or the eldest brother, or the powerful person in that village. And the powerful person, the big person in the village, would prepare for that visit and give them gifts. That's the way that it typically worked. And you know, that's the way it works in a lot of religions, isn't it? In fact, oftentimes we think, oh, that's the way that we actually gain access to God. We who are small come to God. We maybe bring something to Him, and He lets us in. We come to Him, and He then gives us the gift of salvation. But actually, the gospel is radically different. It's 100% different. Because what Jesus did, Jesus, the greatest, came to the smallest. Jesus, the greatest, came to the least so that He, being the greatest, might give us the thing that we could never get on our own. He didn't call us to come to Him. He came to us. And in order to do that, He had to humble himself. Jesus had to humble himself in order to save us. I love the way that Bono, the lead singer of U2, my family and I, my kids and I have been kind of in a U2 phase lately, and this is what Bono actually has to say about the incarnation. It's a really beautiful comment. He says, the idea that God, if there's a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough that it would seek to explain itself by becoming a child, born in poverty, born in straw. A child, I thought, wow, just the poetry of it all. I saw the genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this. 
Love needs a form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become. There must be an incarnation. Love must become flesh. Isn't that beautiful? What a wonderful truth. Love must become flesh. And that is exactly what Jesus has done in order to love us, to show us his love as we read earlier in 1 John that he would lay down his life for us. So first and foremost, Jesus' humility is our salvation. We cannot be saved without a humble Savior. Secondly, Jesus' humility is our example. And this is a place where oftentimes we can kind of get it twisted up in our heads, right? We want to be really careful to say, no, the way that you act is not how you earn God's favor. But sometimes in saying that, we can just go ahead and erase the way that we act as if it doesn't matter. We've said this plenty of times, right, is that your identity is not based on your activity. However, your activity is highly informed by your identity. Because of who you are, you act how you do. And Jesus calls us, those who have been forgiven by Him, that humble Savior who has come to lay His life down for us, to humble Himself so that He might save us. Now, those who are saved are called to act in humility in return. In fact, back to Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul talking both about Jesus' humbling of himself and how we are to act in return. Listen again as he says this in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Friends, those who have been saved by a humble Savior respond in humility. We act in humility following Jesus, imitating Jesus, being like Jesus in His humility. If you are a parent, or maybe you've seen a parent, hopefully you've been this parent, who has at one point gotten down on the floor and played with your children. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm so glad that my children are old enough to stand up and walk around and we don't have to play on the floor anymore because it drives me crazy. It hurts my back or my knees. I don't like it. You get down and you play that dumb memory game over and over. Like I know where all the cards are and we still have to do it. Or Candyland, which is just a completely insufferable game. But because you love your children, you get on the ground and you play with them. You enter into their world. You become part of who they are. That's humility, isn't it? And it's not just for parents with children. This is the way that Christians are called to act toward those around them, to enter into their world, to get down. Maybe it's on the floor, just to get down into their place, to dive in to who they are and what, uh, what they love and to be a part of who they are so that we might share the humble love of Christ with them. Now, let me just really quickly say, answer the question, how does that happen? How do we build humility in our hearts? How do we create humility in our hearts? Here's one little way. Focus on, maybe even meditate on, spend time considering how God is at work in other people. 
spend time thanking God for how he is at work in others. C.S. Lewis said it so well, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And so when we start to move our focus to thanking God for how he's at work in our spouse or in our children or in our friends or in our neighbors, how is God at work in them? It actually moves the focus off of us and moves it towards celebrating God's work in another. That process is part of building humility in us. All right, let's move on to the third piece. Jesus' humility is first and foremost our salvation. And then because of that salvation, it is also our example. But Jesus' humility is also our comfort. Jesus comforts us. His humility means that He understands us. I don't know if you have seen any of these ads um, called Jesus Gets Us. If you watch college football, you probably have seen these uh, because they're all over football games. Uh, I want us to actually watch one of those, and if we can get it technically working right here, we're going to show one of those right now. So let's pull that up and watch it together. There was a family. They played together and laughed together. But they weren't completely alike. And as they grew older, their opinions widened and they distanced from each other. Conversations became heated. Reunions became more and more uncomfortable. They thought they were made for each other. One thinking of one another brother aligned against sister never thinking just for one second birthdays were ignored gatherings stopped because each had to be right we don't want them oh no we don't want them we don't want them we don't I love these ads because they get to the very heart, really, of what Jesus' humility is. He said, He actually knows us. He understands us. Because He became one of us and lived as us, He actually knows what we go through. There's articles also on the webpage where this, these videos are housed. I want to read you part of this about Christmas, part of one of these articles. It begins this way, Christmas is almost never perfect. In fact, it almost always comes around with its own variety of specific stresses that only a holiday can bring. Broken family relationships, incredibly stressful travel, financial strain exasperated, um, exasperated by the pressure to give good gifts, crying kids, imperfect pictures. The whole experience is sometimes so difficult it distracts us from the joy of the season. But what if I told you that by experiencing all the bad that comes with Christmas along with its good, you're actually doing Christmas the right way, or at least the original way? Don't be fooled by the pristine nativity scene on your grandmother's shelf. The real Christmas story has a lot more grit. If you were at Krause's on Tuesday, you heard me say this as well as that, you know, we often, and we will tonight, end our Christmas Eve service with Silent Night. It's beautiful, it's peaceful, it's serene, we'll light candles, we'll walk out, and everybody will love it. But it is far from the truth of the original Christmas night. That was not a silent night. A young woman 
giving birth without medication in a barn was probably not real peaceful. He goes on to say this in this essay, the first Christmas was a mess, and yet Mary and Joseph were still overjoyed to welcome the newborn Jesus into the world. The backdrop of brokenness just made the joy of new life that much more a celebration. I have a fair share of stressful, strained, and imperfect Christmas memories. I'm fairly certain that we all do. But if the first Christmas could be so messy and still warrant a massive celebration over 2,000 years later, maybe it's worth acknowledging the imperfect moments that point us to the ones full of joy. The point is this, is that Jesus' incarnation, and particularly His humility in His incarnation, means that He understands us. And the fact that Jesus not only was born into a mess, but lived that mess for all of His life, means that He actually gets the mess that we live in too. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God of our Father Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts those in affliction. And how is it that God is able to comfort, that Jesus is a comforter? Well, listen now to Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You hear what those two passages are saying? Jesus is able to sympathize with us, is able to comfort us in our time of trouble, in our time of need, because He has been one of us, because He knows what it's like, because Jesus went through all of the things that we go through. And friends, we've said this multiple times through Advent, and it's worth saying again, Christmas is awesome. It is full of joy, it is full of happiness, it is full of celebration, it is full of glory, and that is all good and right. But it is also full of a lot of trouble. It's also full of a lot of sadness. It's also full of a lot of brokenness. It's also full of a lot of grief. And Jesus knows grief. So let me just say, it's the times that you feel probably the furthest from the Lord, the time where you feel over, overburdened, the time where you feel um, buried in that grief, the time that you feel the loneliest, the times that hurt the most, those are usually the times that we want to distance ourselves from Jesus, aren't they? Because there's something broken in our hearts that says, no, I can't come to Jesus, and I definitely can't come to church, and I can't be around my Christian friends unless everything looks good. But do you know that the Bible actually says that that is the time that you can draw most closely to Him? Those are the times that you and Jesus understand each other most deeply. Those are the times that we can feel like, you know what, Jesus has felt this pain He's felt the rejection of family. He's felt the rejection of friends. He's felt physical pain. He's felt loneliness. He has felt grief. He's seen people he love, d loves die. 
He's seen his friends leave him. He has been persecuted. He has been hung on a cross, and he has taken on the punishment for the sins of the world. Jesus understands pain. We can draw near to him when we have it as well. Let me just close by saying this. This Christmas, I hope that you have a lot of joy. I hope that it's really fun for you to have family around. I hope that it's really a joyful time to celebrate the most joyful thing that's ever happened in the world is that God would become one of us so that He might save us. That is worth giving thanks and rejoicing over. But I also hope it's a time where you can focus in a little more clearly on Jesus' humility and how His humility is the key to His salvation of us, how His humility is even the key to what it's like to follow Him, how His humility is the key to what it's like to draw near to Him in the most difficult times. Let's pray that the Lord would enable us to do that even now. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for Your coming. We're so grateful that You looked at a broken world, a world that had rejected you, had, had run away and was still running away. And you looked at that world and you decided rather than to leave it in its misery that you would come and fix it. We are so grateful, Lord, that you chose to enter into our brokenness, that you did so in, in a way even that was astounding, it was countercultural, that even when we look on it now, it just seems weird that you would come and enter our world in such humility, that you might take on our brokenness, that you might release us from the power of sin. And Lord, we look forward to a time when your coming again will be less humble and more glorious when you will come riding on the clouds, proclaiming the new kingdom that will last forever. We look forward to that time, Lord. And until that time, create in us humility. Create in us, Lord, the desire to draw near to you in our most difficult times. And be with us, Lord, as we both celebrate and mourn this Christmas. We pray in Jesus' name.